Hey folks, I'm Karen Mahorn, a.k.a. The Blurred Girl. I'm a writer and critic parked at the intersection of geekdom and diversity. I'm Chuck Collins, comic book artist, former bouncer, and horror connoisseur. And this is Pop Paranormal from Travel Channel. Welcome back to the show where we take you from the scary screen to behind the scenes of the most talked about horror movies and shows. So, Chuck, if you know me, you know I love Nick Cage. Well, I do know you, and I do know you love Nick Cage. But what I don't know is do you have a favorite Nick Cage performance? There are so many. (laughs) Because he's incredible. (laughs) But I think I'd have to go with, like, Nick Cage in his underwear, in the bathroom, covered with blood, downing a bottle of vodka, pouring vodka on, like, open wounds, and, like, making these crazy guttural animal noises because, like, his girlfriend's just been killed. Oh, you're talking about the beautiful, haunting, terrifying movie called Mandy. And yes, you are absolutely right. Nick Cage's character is completely unhinged because of the death of his girlfriend, and his performance is raw and it's wild. There's not enough adjectives to actually describe how this movie is. Can you even imagine anyone else in this role? Like, I don't think anybody else could do it justice. What do you think? Who do you think could have done this role? No one. I, I can't. I honestly can't think of anybody else. It was truly a crazy performance for a crazy and awesome movie. On today's show, we're talking about the 2018 bloody revenge story, Mandy. And folks, this movie is nothing like anything you've ever seen before. Actually, or anything like we've talked about on this show before. You know, it's really, really a different kind of horror movie. Yeah, for so many reasons. It's the kind of movie that you watch and you're, like, really enthralled by it. Like, by the time you finish watching it, it's like, what the hell did I just watch? It's so brutal and violent, but at the same time, it's artful and beautifully shot. And it was so rich with symbolism. Oh, my God, yes. So much symbolism. We have some theories on actually what it all means, but we have no idea if we're right. So it's great news that we're able to talk with one of the co-writers of Mandy, Aaron Stewart, on to help us figure it out. Yeah, and it was super cool because after Aaron wrote Mandy, his career, like, exploded. That movie put him on the map. But, like, we knew him before he got, like, famous, famous, so... We sure did. (laughs) So... Aaron also recently wrote an episode for Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosity, which just dropped on Netflix. And he actually teamed back up with some of the people that created Mandy, including the director, Panos Cosmatos. So, Panos Cosmatos created and directed Mandy, and Aaron Stewart on, and Casper Kelly co wrote the script. Mandy was also produced by Elijah Wood for his company, Spectric Vision. Uh, you know, because Frodo be out here making horror movies. <laughs> the movie stars Nicolas Cage, as we mentioned, as Red, and the love of his life, Mandy, played by the amazing Andrea Riceborough. It also features Linus Roach as Jeremiah Sand, the super creepy cult leader. And yes, folks, that's the same Linus Roach who played Batman's dad, Thomas Wayne, in The Dark Knight. And so, excuse me if I call (laughs) Jeremiah Sand Batman's dad throughout this episode, because I can't unsee that. (laughs) Neither can I. 
Look, critics loved this film when it first came out. To quote the New York Times, the movie imagery is consistently unearthly. Its pacing has a magisterial weight. And to be quite frank, like, I agree. I mean, this movie hit me really hard. It's kind of like when you go to the museum and you see, like, a very brilliant art piece. It's dense, but it's moody. It's vibrant. You can't stop looking at it. And it's like every time you look at it, though, you get you see something new, something that you didn't see before. I completely agree with you. I'm just trying to remember the last time yeah. you went to see a museum. Like, when, when's the <laughs> last time you saw a painting? <laughs> but without further ado, you know what time it is. Yeah, now this one is going to be tough because this movie, I'm going to describe this movie in one minute. And as usual, I am going to spoil the entire thing like rotten eggs. But don't get mad at me if you're a bit confused. The pop paranormies are going to love it. They love this stuff. <laughs> so, all right. All, all right. right. I'm giving my best shot. So get ready to spoil right about now. So Mandy takes place in 1983 and follows Red and Mandy, a middle-aged couple living off the grid in a little cabin in the woods in California. Now, Red is a logger and Mandy is an artist. And one day, Mandy, out for her daily walk, is spotted by the vile Jeremiah Sands, the leader of a sadistic cult called Children of the New Dawn. Jeremiah becomes obsessed with her, and then they summon a trio of drugged-out biker ghouls called the Black Skulls to break into their home and kidnap Mandy and Red. They drug Mandy with LSD and bug poison, and Sand attempts to woo her. But when she rejects him, he burns her alive in front of Red. Red completely snaps. He arms himself with a huge crossbow dubbed the Reaper and a massive chainsaw the size of a Buick and basically takes a huge hit of the altered LSD, goes on a rampage, kills everyone, starting with the gang and ending with the cult, and in the end, drives off into the sunrise with the ghost of Mandy Bass. Yes. You wasn't over. No, you're good. <laughs> the love story, the sadistic cult, the LSD, and unhinged Nicolas Cage, it really makes you want to know what this movie is actually about. But we have some clues. The director, Panos Cosmatos, wrote Mandy right after he wrote his first horror film, Beyond the Black Rainbow, in 2010. Now, that was about a young woman with psychic abilities who tries to escape, like, this secluded institute-slash-futuristic commune while a controlling narcissistic doctor attempts to use her powers to achieve transcendence. Panos actually has said before that Beyond the Black Rainbow and Mandy are about him mourning the death of his own parents and processing a traumatic event. So Panos has said that after his mother died, he would blackout drink to cope, not unlike what Red, the Nicolas Cage character, does to cope with his tragedy. And then when his father died, Panos turned to writing. And his father, by the way, is award-winning director George P. Cosmatos. So it's clear that his love of movies came from his dad. We also need to point out that this movie's trippy as Yes, hell. it is. Like... <laughs> Everyone is taking LSD. I mean, and that raises some questions about what is real and what is not. But um, even in the movie, there's a bunch of scenes where the viewer sees overlaying images. Like, you're not really sure what you're seeing, whether it's reality or a dream. There's so many times I question whether or not Mandy was actually real. Because that oh, yeah. ethereal nature of just the layering of light and the layering of images and projection of images, sometimes Absolutely. on actors' faces, sometimes on, like, walls and things like that. It was kind of hard to tell sometimes what was real and what was just 
a one big trip. The entire movie is just mood. The colors put you in a certain mood. The scenes put you in a certain mood. They like, do. The way that the sound was done, it was, it was absolutely trippy, and I loved every minute of it. Well, it's interesting that you said sound because music is really important to this film. And Cosmato said yeah. that he wanted the film to sound like a disintegrating rock opera. And you can really hear that disintegrating feeling. Like, he also said that he was really inspired by Queen's Flash Gordon soundtrack, the 1980 space opera film. Yeah, that, that is probably one of the greatest movies of all oh time. Oh, my God. The greatest soundtrack of all time. I was going to say, the soundtrack yes, is. is incredible. I don't know about the movie, but the soundtrack is that, actually see? incredible. It's interesting about the music symbolism in the movie. Mandy is always wearing a Black Sabbath mm-hmm. or Motley Crue t-shirt. There's right. a lot of really good t-shirts in this movie. No, definitely. And in the opening credits, the music by King Crimson, which is one of my favorite bands. I mean, their album is called Red, which happens to be the same name as Nicolas Cage's character. Yes, I forgot about that. And yeah. It, yeah. And the thing about this song that's playing is called Starless. And if you listen to the lyrics, it basically describes Red's world without Mandy, Red's world without stars. Oh, okay, because you know he's always looking it's, at her like she's his light, right. she's his star. That's that's interesting. Absolutely. And it's an ongoing theme throughout the movie. Also, Mandy's mm-hmm. really into planets. She draws them. Her and Red talk about planets. And it seems like... They're surrounded by planets, like when you're looking at the horizon and stuff like that. You've got all these images of the of the sky. Yeah. It's just this really ethereal feel that it's just another layer to the movie. They never really discuss it. Right. It's not really a big thing like, oh, we're going to go to another planet. But when the biker gang shows up and they seem to have these otherworldly powers— the symbols that you've seen just bring you right there. Like, yeah, they're not from here. They're not from these neck of the woods. Right. <laughs> What's funny about the whole thing with the planets thing, and I'll, I'll just do this to rock your mind a little bit. Red is like one of his favorite planets. His, his Galactus and Mandy's like, that's not a planet. He says, no, no, but he eats other planets. I find it so funny that right after that, the whole tragedy happens and he literally goes around destroying everything like he is Galactus. You know what? I didn't pick up on that. And that is a comic book thing. That is a, if you're a comic book book fan, you are going to recognize that entire sequence because Galactus, the Marvel character, he is the eater of planets. He literally would go around the solar system and devour worlds. He is the devourer of worlds. That's literally what Red does in this film. He just devours everything around him. Yeah. And another thing that's interesting visually, Mandy appears to have heterochromia, which means her eyes are two different colors. She mm-hmm. also seems to have anisocoria, where her pupils are a different size. And David Bowie right. had both of these as well. I wonder if this is a reference to him. Okay, I think we could go on like this forever, like picking up on all the little right. things and symbols in this movie, trying to figure out what they mean. But I think there's a few things we can say with certainty about Mandy, and that is Red and Mandy have this undeniable Mm -hmm. love for each other. And after the cult kills Mandy, Red is totally lost without her and seeks retribution in the most violent of ways. Yeah, I mean, look, it's basically like two movies in one for me. Mm-hmm. The first part being the love story and the second part being a gruesome revenge story. I mean, it, or, you know, actually three movies. It could be the first part is a love story. The second part is a gruesome revenge story that turns into a cosmic horror. That, that's true. 
I mean, when we said no one else could play the role of Red but Nick Cage, we weren't kidding. Like, he's both vicious and tragic. And you completely understand why he's unhinged. But then you also question how. Like, you understand that he is unhinged because of the death of his girlfriend. But where Mm -hmm. he goes when he opens that door is like, what have you been through, man? Like, who hurt you? The things that he decides to do to these people, like, yeah, you really want to learn more. Yeah, and and the funny thing is about Red is that, you know, you got to understand that this is a guy who's faced a lot of trauma, and it's kind of alluded to the fact that he may have just been, like, a vet. And so he meets somebody like Manny that becomes his whole world, and then it's taken away from him. Now, on the other side of of that coin, you have Mandy, who is both vulnerable and fearless on her own. You know, we learn a bit about her backstory where she had a troubled relationship with her father, and it seems to have made her, like, very weary of people. She tells that disturbing story, you know, the one when they were in bed together, about her dad getting all these starlings together. You know, and then he starts to kill them and tells the kids around there to start, you know, killing them, too. And when it came to her turn, she just up and left. Yeah, she just didn't want to take any part of it. Absolutely. But then that speaks to so much volumes to her character. And then she's like in a complete vulnerable place where she's kidnapped by the children of the new dawn. She literally laughs at Jeremiah's face. Like, you remember that whole part? Yeah, you know, I mean, I really like her character because basically, even though she was in a vulnerable position, she has been through so much trauma that she makes the decision at that moment. Like, even even though she's high, her reaction is like, mm-hmm. no, I have survived and I am not afraid of you. I see you for what you are and I'm going to speak out. I'm not walking away. I can't. I'm going to say to you right. exactly what this is. And so that strength even though I don't know if she knew she was going to die, but I knew she knew there would be consequences. But she just, she was absolutely had no fear. Well, yeah, it was like her final stand. Like, there's nothing that, you know, she could have done. And it kind of gives you that whole thing of like, look, I know what you're doing. I know what you're about. I'm not going to give you the satisfaction before you take me out. I, that, that's just But again, I don't, what I gonna, don't actually happen. don't think she knew that they were going to kill her. I think she thought she was going to be, like, assaulted. And that's what's interesting, because as a viewer, you're, like, anticipating this violent scene against a woman. Mm -hmm. But then they flip it, and Mandy takes back control by laughing and humiliating this guy who thinks he's all-powerful. In the end, it does not work out for her. And we get into all this with the writer, the co-writer, Aaron Stewart on, by the way. Look, my final thought. We've got this dude, Crothers, played by Bill Duke. Yes. Who Red visits after Mandy is murdered to get his weapon. Mm -hmm. Not just any weapon, but the Reaper. Exactly. That thing is ridiculous. (laughs) And Crothers was like, he looks at him and says, I got some extra stuff for you over there. And then he gives him the special arrows, too. Yep. Now, Crothers, though, he clears some things up for us. The Black Skull Biker Gang, the drugs that they used, and what Red is up against. Yeah. And the fact that Red Money did not even survive this whole battle. Black Skulls. Look at me. For a while now, word's been coming down from the big rig, something dark and fearsome out there. 
no one knows where they come from. First it was stories from the interstate. Leaving truckers for dead, prostitutes vanishing. Yeah, it was a really interesting scene. I'm, I'm not, I kind of felt, I don't know if it was a little out of place, but I definitely felt mm-hmm. that there was, there was something a little different. Like, I think definitely it was the brightest scene in the whole movie. Like, it was well, really, really <laughs> light. And then also, there was a lot of backstory in there that I felt like could have been spread out a little bit mm-hmm. more. But then again, look, well, look, he had Bill Duke. And if you get Bill Duke, right. you use him. You make him read everything. So Absolutely. Absolutely. That man is a I legend. I think, um, <laughs> oh no, Bill Duke is the man. Um, I actually don't feel that that scene was out of place. I think it actually explains a lot. Um, I think it kind of gives you this backstory of Red and where he's from. And it's kind of alluded to the fact that he probably was a vet or he probably wasn't a very good person before he met Mandy. Either way, it would have been a hell of a boring movie if after Mandy died, he just decided, well, let me just go to the police and get this taken care of. So to have that part of the story tells you that him going to get revenge, he's actually skilled enough to just do that. And whether he's going to survive or not is no consequence to him. I'm taking down the people who killed my girl. Yeah. Like, that's all it was. Exactly. Now, listen, up next, we're going to get a lot of these questions answered. Well, some of them anyway, in our discussion with Mandy co-writer Aaron Stewart on. And we'll even talk about his work with Guillermo del Toro on Cabinet of Curiosities. All right, Pop Paranormies, I know we, and probably you by this point, have so many questions about this film, which is why we were so thrilled that we chatted with Mandy co-writer Aaron Stewart on. Aaron is the consummate artist. He's written across mediums, including comics, movies, music videos, and a hell of a lot more. He was a staff writer on Netflix, The Witcher. He was also part of the production team for the video game Red Dead Redemption, which is one of my faves. And his latest, actually, he wrote an episode for Guillermo del Toro's Cabinet of Curiosities, which is now on Netflix. Mm. Now, for those of you who don't know, Cabinet of Curiosities is an eight-episode anthology of horror shorts produced by Guillermo del Toro, each featuring a different director and writing team. And Aaron Stewart on got to team up with Mandy director Panos Cosmatos again to create this episode. It's called The Viewing, and it features legendary actor Peter Weller, Robocop, for those of you who are old enough to remember who that is. And Weller plays a wealthy recluse collector who invites a small group of professionals, including a chemist, a musician, a telekinetic, and a writer, to reveal to them an alien artifact. But, uh... Things don't go as planned, and... Oh, they do not. No, a lot of people die. A lot of people (laughs) die. So I'm so excited to bring to Pop Paranormal Aaron Stewart on, the legendary director-writer. I know, he's not ready for all this. We're really, really excited to have you here. How are you? I'm good. This wasn't your first movie, obviously, but would you say this was your biggest project? If you really want to get into the origin of this movie, I had been a sort of journey person filmmaker who was very frustrated because the stories I was trying to tell at the time I was, there wasn't a lot of traction. And I'll just be really honest about it. There were stories 
genre stories with uh, Asian Americans is lead. I'm 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 Korean American, and I just could not get financing or casting. I would hit walls, uh, and I was really frustrated by this. I got so burned out. I ended up working in a bicycle shop because I was just fed up and I had this wow. real existential crisis. And uh, I went to see at the Tribeca Film Festival a midnight premiere of a movie called Beyond the Black Rainbow. That is Panos's, uh, not his first movie, but uh, a, a pretty big one. His first feature. And I'm going to admit this. People walked out, you know, it's a... Whoa. Yeah, yeah. And I felt for this filmmaker and I really liked him in the Q&A afterwards. And I just walked right up to him and I was just like, I, I loved your movie. And, and that began a friendship. But I was working in the bike shop and he came to me and he's like, I, I, I'm writing this movie, my next movie. And he'd read a script of mine, a horror film I'd been trying to make that, that wasn't get, going anywhere, but he liked it a lot. And he asked me if I could help him write this this movie he was working on. And um, he passed me the materials that he had, like, you know, he had a chunk of it written. And so we started. So I spent, I think, three years working in the bike shop, writing it with him. But then what's it like taking somebody's story, their concept, and then formatting that into a screenplay? I mean, to be sincere, like, you know, Mandy like, was born out of some very real, real personal trauma. And mm. Panos has talked about it publicly in other interviews, so I feel okay talking about it. Um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and I won't go into details, but just my own fascination. You know, I, I had some, like, illness issues that kept me hospitalized for a while. Like, just mm -hmm. the, the, the feeling of being close to mortality, anxiety attacks, all, all these things, like you know, fused, emerged in this story that he wanted to tell. And, and he, he had a very concrete thing where he wanted to use the form of a revenge thriller. And, and that has these constraints. And how do you be creative around it? You know, and, and I had concerns, too. You know, I, I wasn't like I would never personally write a movie that's centered around the killing of a woman. If we were going to do that, we were going to try and find a way to subvert it and dig deep and, and connect it to people we've lost in our lives and try and, you know, make a connection. And, and so that first half of Mandy, you know, the movie's named after Mandy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That was a fight. Like, we had to really fight. Like, people were like, you can't make an action movie with Nicolas Cage with a feminine name. But that was oh, in wow. the script. That was in the script that her name would appear at the halfway mark of the movie and be the title card. You started the movie off with this feeling, and, and I guess it's also the way that the mood was. The mood, the use of color, like, every shot was done so beautifully that you felt that mood and that love between Red and Mandy. And you were just like, this, if this was just the movie, I'd be fine. Right. You right. know, and then yeah. when you get to the midpoint, you're like, oh, I forgot what kind of movie I was watching. Well, that's good to hear because we wanted to do a tricky thing, which was to make you really care about them and feel for them before you irreparably feel the loss right. as hard as it is. Guillermo del Toro said this thing once, like, now we'll discuss later that I've worked for him a little bit. But years ago, I read this thing in a book, an interview with him that just, it hit me almost like a religious lightning bolt where he was like, we don't use genre stories like horror, fantasy, sci-fi. We don't use them to escape. We use them to interpret reality. 
And for us, like the mechanism of a revenge thriller, the horror genre, those can be like weirdly comforting or cathartic or a way to discuss sublimated, suppressed things in society that other forms of drama might have difficulty with or, mm-hmm. you know, can be afraid to confront. So, you know, there's there's something about being a little leg- illegitimate with, with, with those forms that right. is very liberating. But also at the same time, like, there's a funny thing. A lot of people I know who have been through serious trauma in their lives, horror movies are comforting to them. And I also think that a lot of the characters that are in horror movies are archetypes for things. And which brings me to my next question. Let's talk about some of these characters. Jeremiah Sand, the cult leader who... Everybody knows I keep calling him Batman's dad because <laughs> Linus Roach, what do we do when we fall, Bruce? What do we do? Yeah, exactly. Get back up. Yeah. But he was so good in this film. He was unrecognizable. Yeah, That's yeah. why I keep having to remind myself that he was Batman's dad. But what did he represent? Because it was it just toxic masculinity or was it more than that? Yeah, I mean, for sure. It's funny. Like, look. Trump was not, he had not announced his candidacy when we started writing this, but it's just... Wow, I thought it was inspired by him. Okay. No, no, it, it, <laughs> but, but, it, but, but here's the thing I, that I think is really scary is that there was something in the air already that he was going to harness, you know, and, yes, and, and that's what agree. we were. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there's, it, it's not just toxic masculinity, it's narcissism, it's it's wanting to control people. I think this is a theme, panelists and I, when we work together, we return to a lot, and, and he even does not Beyond the Black Rainbow. Um, but just out of insecurity and fear, violence manifests through desire to control other people and how right. terrifying that is. Yeah. And and yeah. I don't know. We just had a feeling that there was something in the air about that. For whatever reason, Panos and I grew up, we grew up in the same region of the world separated by the Canadian border, the Pacific Northwest. And there's something very, you know, there's a lot of mist and primeval woods. That's why the movie's set in the shadow oh, mountains that explains region. a lot right, right. yeah right it, like we grew up in in the same kind of psychic landscape uh, david lynch grew up there it's like okay it, there, mm-hmm. there's something about that place like the mist. i always say like the wind and the mist gets inside your bones and sort of reconfigures how you feel about certain things and just dark forces being in the ether also in a really bad way we both know a lot about cults which is using that was my next question (laughs) no that's what i was gonna ask you i'm like since you're up in there was there a lot of cults in this mist because uh oh for sure (laughs) and by the way also i gotta say that the the name of the cult that you guys gave it and and now hearing you say this it's like right you know before trump came into office like you felt that there was something in the air you call them the children of the new dawn because Mm -hmm. it does represent a new dawn of what we have now going on in 2022 like that yeah. was the begin. like that it was there like you said but it was just like it's, it was on brand yeah it was on <laughs> yeah. brand yeah, personally i think so yeah i will say panos came up with that name specifically but there there was some riffing there on just like how the counterculture movement led to some very abusive individuals who who mm-hmm. sought control of people when when it was draped in this very peace and love thing and the fallout of that into the 70s and 80s coming off right. of like radicalism in the 60s like mm-hmm. just the way these good intentions or desire to spiritually ascend get contorted and distorted by people's egos usually men like you know that that, that right. was something and I, if anything i don't think we were prescient we're just 
revisiting something that's haunting us, you know? Who was the inspiration for Red? Was it Panos? Or was it just that collective consciousness of rage that gets suppressed just so we can live in society? Well, I'll backtrack a little bit here. And and this isn't to frustrate you or to be obtuse, (laughs) but, you know, Panos and I are great believers in the beauty of a mystery, especially in this day and age where information is so accelerated. But it's 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 like really fundamental to our love of cinema, like movies specifically, where it's like we long for and really respect the idea that watching a movie is itself a creative act. Not just making it, but when you watch mm-hmm. or you read a book, your psyche is re- you know taking in the the conveyance, like words on a page or images and sounds in a movie, and you're reassembling them in your mind and then adding your own interpretation to them. It's been a few years, but there's there's some stuff about this. We've been always been uh, very careful about wanting to define because we want people to have interpretations about it that 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 are completed by their imagination, and we really respect that. Yeah, I mean, to use the crudest example, just and not to tear down something else, but but when we were kids, Boba Fett, you know, was something that you just glimpsed on screen a few minutes and oh, had yeah. m- mythical power. You were like, yep. who yep. is this? What is their story? Like, And you wanted to complete that in your own mind and imagination. And that's all you had apart from, you know, a weird holiday special. That yeah, that's, that's yeah, holiday yeah, special. No, I, no I, I, will, I will actually agree <laughs> to the fact that a lot of people did that. So that when the movie, when the series came out, people were raging and like, this is not who he is. I'm like... You've never seen. Yeah, who we, we he don't did. never did. Like, <laughs> but, 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 I think for the whole series, like what? Yeah, but you, exactly. and there is. I do agree with what you're saying. Like many times, there is precedent with creators not explaining some of their you know characters and meanings because they want the people who are watching it to give their own interpretation. So I can absolutely res- respect that. I don't even want to interfere with their personal connection mm-hmm. to it. Like, Red is an archetype. There's power in that archetype. And if somebody sees themselves reflected in his rage, his grief, then I feel like we've accomplished something, you know? It's funny. Like, I will tell you a story. Like, just even about our own process, like, Panos and I even leave it mysterious to us a little bit. There's there's a line in Mandy, and I love this, there's, there's a line in Mandy where Red's chained to, you know, a radiator pipe, and one of the Black Skull biker gang has, like, a knife to him. And uh, she says, do you have a death wish? And he says, I don't want to talk about yeah. it. And, <laughs> And, okay, so this is like, I'm revealing this to you now. This is new information. Ooh, yes, yes. That was something like, we were talking one day about a scene. And you know, there's some really disturbing stuff we've wrote in there. There's horror elements. But I can't remember who it was, but somebody had written something very disturbing. And we got on this conversation and some one of us said, like, you know, how did, how did you come up with this? And the reply was, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> and, and there was this pause... <laughs> And we were like, you know what? We should write that into the movie. Yes. <laughs> <And so> <laughs> <laughs> that's classic. And I remember that scene, too. Yeah, because-, because that scene stood out so much because <laughs> Nicolas Cage's face during that scene, it went from like, you know, I, I'm going to cry about this moment that I don't want to talk about. <laughs> we're just not going to mention it. That's like, yeah, but it's like right. he's outside held- of the movie now at this point. And he's being held hostage, but <laughs> yeah. it's like a therapy session. It's yeah. just so funny. But to me, the thing I'm proud of about that screenplay is that we got Nicolas Cage. We got, to me, most importantly, Andrea Riceborough. To I was going to say Andrea yeah. as Mandy was, was amazing. Yeah. But it was really like, you know, 
we were making an exploitation action horror movie with Nicolas Cage. I was concerned that there would be pressure to cast like, you know, a, a 22-year-old ingenue who's, you know, like half right. its age, which which can happen to you when you're making a movie like this. I want to talk about Mandy, the character, but I also wanted to just thank yeah. you because it is so rare in horror I've only seen it a few times, and I think somebody like Jamie Lee Curtis, with with her legendary status, has been able to right. do it. But very few women over the age of forty are, or thirty five even, are, yeah, are yes. able to really uh, express themselves in horror. And Andrea did an incredible job, and the two of them really looked like I said, not just that they were in love, but they were at a point in their lives that they were like, "You are my person." Yeah. Right. Like, we connect, you are the other half of me. Yeah. And you could get that. Even though you saw her trauma and you saw some things that she was going through and the fact that she expressed herself through art. But I also saw that, and I don't know if this is on purpose, and again, you probably won't tell me, but mm-hmm. in Mandy's defiance against Jeremiah, I saw her triumph. I will talk clearly about this because I think it, it is so clear Uh you know, that need for his ego to be satisfied, she just destroys it immediately. Yes. She has no time for it. She thinks it's just absurd, like fundamentally yeah. absurd. And she sees right through the illusion, even through this veil of narcotics that he's dosed her with, even with the admiration of his followers, she just sees that this is bullshit. And then I, I would say, you know, her her name has not appeared in the movie yet. It's it's like no. and, she, and she starts yeah. to return as a as as a, as a specter, you know, as a vision to mm-hmm. Red. So in some ways, she haunts the rest of the movie. Like absolutely, mm-hmm. she's she's still present. I mean, yes, as something spectral and, and ephemeral, but she's there pushing Red and and sort of enacting through him her wishes for for vengeance herself too. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's an aspect of that in the animated sequences and the dreams he's having. Oh, absolutely. So let's get to the question that we've both mm. been meaning to ask you, and that is working with Nicolas Cage. Yeah. Um, does one really direct Nicolas Cage? Oh, or yeah, does yeah. Nicolas just tell you what he wants to do? No, 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 no. <laughs> um, he's too... Um, look, he's he, he is incredible. He's one of those rare... Like, you hear about old-school Hollywood actors, like, they, they, they can actually ask the focus puller on the camera... Am I twelve feet from your lens? And they know. They know where the you know. They know focus, what that means. Right. They yeah. know where the focus is and where to put their face, like without having somebody tell them to do this. Like Nick knows where the boom microphone is. He knows what the sound person's doing. He knows he's he's aware of every mechanism of filming. Wow. So he's extraordinary collaborative. He is full of energy and very fast, which like can be tricky for other people. You gotta always be rolling when he's when he's on set, huh? Always be rolling. Yeah. It's like, you know, some other actors like it takes a while to get into the takes and so on. And and just but Nickel just like I mean the the him on the toilet with the bottle of vodka and it's like I'm thinking, did we do two takes or just one? It might have been one. I, I I can't remember now, but I do know like the take you see there's a fuck up in the camera move. Like the camera got c- stuck on Cut. something. 
But we kept it because it felt emotional. It actually feels like you're scared of approaching him or getting intimate with him in that moment. Right. Like the camera catches for a second. I've never processed that. My my thing was intentional. I I was like looking at that whole scene and the way that it was going, like the 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 pacing of the movie. And I was like, I don't know what the writers did. This is before I knew you wrote it. I was like, I don't know what the writers did. But this, did they write to this point and then, then in the notes say, okay, Nicolas Cage is going Nicolas Cage right here. <laughs> and then keep it open. <laughs> it's like, we ain't going to write nothing for him. We just, just let him do his thing. <laughs> like We weren't you know. writing the movie for him when we wrote it. In fact, panels has talked about this. He wanted him to play Sand. He was like, this is a long oh. chain. Oh, mo- interesting. Mo- and, yeah. and Nick was like, no, I want to play, I want to play um, Red. And Panos walked away from that dinner and he texted me. He's like, yeah, he doesn't want to play sand. And then he texted me like an hour back, like, I'm a fucking idiot. Like, of course he should play red. Like, you know, what am I thinking? What's wrong with me? Like, and then we committed to it. So it's like, and and I know that him and Panos spent some really deep time collaborating. I mean, on every out of the look, nice. what facial hair, what hair, what shirt. Like, he is totally open to direction. It's like I think our producer Josh Waller said this in an interview, and and it's right. Like it's it's whether or not the filmmakers use Cage right is the question. You know, are are they, are they to his level actually? Right. What is one of your favorite memories of making Mandy? One was Bill Duke. Bill, you know, he has a very incredible screen presence, but he's also an incredibly story director, a graduate of the AFI who made some groundbreaking cinema of his own in the 70s. Like, I just got to have this beautiful, in-between takes, I got to sit with Bill Duke in a field full of sunshine in Belgium, outside that trailer where they do their scenes, and Bill was just telling me stories about his experiences in, in Hollywood. He's incredible. Yeah. I got a chance to talk to him on the set of Black Lightning once, and it was just like, oh, can I just cool. stay here? Can I just sit here I? and just stay here forever? It's like talking to an <laughs> uncle about all of like, yeah, Hollywood yeah. films. Yeah. He's so awesome. I love his character in the movie. I love how he delivered it, how he got you know the dialogue into like his like how he conveyed it is just so wonderful to me. It's everything I could have hoped for. That was cool. So. I can't let you go without talking about two more things. One is you have an incredible episode in Guillermo del Toro's latest, or I should say first series on Netflix called Mm. The Cabinet of Curiosities. And your episode is called The Viewing. Just to be clear to your listeners, this is Panos and I working together again with Guillermo as producer. I'm writing with Panos. Panos is directing. Um, And so... And we had to do it with an all-new crew in Toronto, Guillermo's amazing people that he's built up over the years, and all of Guillermo's yeah. resources and generosity and support. Um, but, but the core thing was, you know, yeah, it's the same people who made Mandy. I had a whole theory. That's, that's the reason why I was, I was very interested in talking to yeah. you about it, because I was like, this is now the, the Panos slash Aaron cinematic universe. Like, <laughs> this, all of these stories are connected. And we somehow, do not think of it that way. I have to ask, what was it like working with Guillermo? Guillermo is such a, he's such a gregariously generous, like supportive person who is so like fucking sincere. Like he would use the F word, you know, about his <laughs> love for the art that um, he's just helpful to people, even though he probably shouldn't spend time on, you know, but he's just always been so, so kind to me. I, I just, 
this is ridiculous, but I really loved the movie Crimson Peak and thought it was misunderstood. I wrote an mm-hmm. online essay on Medium that nobody I remember. should read. And I read it. Yeah. <laughs> Guillermo liked it. And so we started communicating a little bit. So that that's wow. all. Like, yeah. Uh, like, you know, sometimes I'd ask him about, and also he's led me down past to certain pieces of literature, like just the weird esoteric interests I have, recommended stuff and reading that I haven't, or things that I've discovered I've passed him, whatever. But it's, but it's not, I wouldn't even describe it as a friendship. It's just more like, He's like a professor and just a sorcerer who's sharing what he has with us all. We've got to ask you one more thing. We ask every guest of Pop Paranormal the same question. What is your favorite horror monster and or weapon? See, that's a tough one because I love... I'm huge into, you know, when I was a teenager, I had so many, like, Stan Winston creatures, like, taped to my bedroom walls. And I really miss, like iconic horror creatures like mm-hmm. even like really like c tier ones like remember shocker what's great with shocker oh, oh my god. god i thought i was the only one that actually enjoyed that <laughs> movie i thought it was like such a cool new villain to have and they only did one film with them <laughs> yeah it's like every, every few weeks there was a new horror movie with like an iconic character slash creature you know so I, right. i'm into that but i gotta really like if i really was honest with myself I mean, the original, like, H.R. Giger, Ridley Scott, and James Cameron version of The Alien, mm. as far as a monster, I just, as, as a work of design, it accomplished so much and was just, you know, it, it, it really, like, you just look at its silhouette and instantly your psyche is affected, you know, by, by what it represents. And I'll also add, it's a weapon, too. So I'm answering you your go. question. Yeah, it's a True. weapon and, and a monster. We can talk to you for like ever. Please tell everybody where they can find you, Aaron, and find <laughs> your medium I'm, writings and find you on social. I'm sorry to laugh because it's like these days I don't look. I'm on I Twitter, know. but we don't know where you're going. So I'm on Twitter as some bad ideas because I have a lot of bad ideas, but <laughs> I don't know how much longer I'll be there. Um, you can just look, you know, Google my name and find wherever the heck I end up living online. We're so really, really thankful that you took time out of your crazy schedule to see us. And we're so proud of you, so proud of all the stuff that you're doing. Every time I see you, like... Same goes for you. So thank you. Wow, that was such a great conversation. And you know what? I, Mm -hmm. I really respect the fact that Aaron and Panos do not want to explain the meaning behind everything so that we can relate to their work in our own way. I love that, but I still learned a lot. I mean, look, we got insight into the Nick Cage bathroom scene, and that's what I was here for. (laughs) Everybody, good night. I'm done. I'm out. Peace. And I also don't believe that the camera messed up. We're going to have to go back and look at it again to find that that hiccup because I didn't see it. I actually did see that, but I didn't think it was a mistake. I just thought that that was supposed to be so intense that the camera did that Yeah, we're going to have to tell them to stop telling people so it's a weird. mistake because you can't really tell. <laughs> so, Aaron, stop telling people it's you messed up. You didn't. It's fine. <laughs>
Now it's time for our favorite segment we call This Week in Bad Decisions, where we talk about some of the not-so-great choices made by characters in movies and shows. Now, there are a lot of options <laughs> for this week for Mandy, yep. but Chuck, where where did you land? Jeremiah Sands. Oh, the cult leader. Okay. Yes. Now, why? Everything about him. You know, first of all, everything. everything. First of all, I'm upset at his mama for having him. That's a bad decision on there by itself. Secondly, I am upset with the fact that he saw Mandy walking down the street. He saw this cool-looking girl with a Black Sabbath T-shirt on decided, I'm going to just choose violence and destroy her life because I want her. But in his, in his world, he si- just doesn't see it that way. He's insane. He doesn't see it that way. He sat there in the bed and, you know, just screamed and, like, writhed talking about, I want her. Like, some, like, Gollum-looking dude. You like He was Gollum. basically Gollum with a ah. wig. He was Gollum <laughs> with a very nice permed wig. That's exactly what he was. And then the way he was, like, begging like a child at the end for his life, yeah. that was a mess. We'll see, but and, and I see that's the thing. And for everybody out there who leads the narcissistic, you know, very self-entitled douchebag nature, what happens to Jeremiah at the end of the movie is eventually going to be your fate. Like, how do you think that whole <laughs> thing is going to work out for you? Summoning demons to kidnap a girl for no reason. And then she laughed at your pee-pee. Like, I'm just, you whack, your dude. Pee-pee. If you don't stop saying pee-pee. <laughs> My pick is Mother Marlene, played by Owen Ferrer. And please forgive me if I'm saying that wrong, because I believe it's Swiss. But, I mean, the actress has been around for a long time. She's amazing. But the fact that she yeah, was just dope. not only doing Jeremiah Sands' bidding, but had placed herself on the top of this hierarchy of women that he uses and attacks other women for him. Like, that's always bothered me. That's always bothered me. Like, the women that are in these stories that are subjecting other women to horrible things. And their whole thing is, well, at least it's not me. But, like, she was really, really twisted. And then when she tried to sort of, like, come at red at the end, like, listen, I'll, you know, I'll go with you. And right. he was, and then he didn't say anything. And the next thing you saw was him carrying her head. I was like, yeah, see? Yeah. Justified. You took his woman and laughed about it. So no. Mm-hmm. Sorry. You're getting everything. She was, it was just all of her choices made no sense to me. I really didn't like her. So those were our picks for this week in bad decisions. But who do you think we should have picked? Let us know using the hashtag pop paranormal. So instead of leaving you with a riddle this week, we just want to thank you for listening to Pop Paranormal. We have absolutely loved doing this show, and we have loved hearing from you all across social media. I absolutely agree. I just want to thank everybody for tuning in and hearing us talk and quarrel week after week about everything horror. And it's great to know that people like to geek out over this stuff as much as we do. And if you haven't yet left a comment, please use hashtag Pop Paranormal across all social platforms. Tell us what you think about the show. Make comments on your favorite podcast platforms. And be sure to follow Travel Channel at Travel Channel on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. See you on the other side. Pop Paranormal is produced by Neon Hum Media for Discovery+. Plus. For Discovery Plus, our executive producer is Barry Blitch. 
at Neon Hum. Our executive producer is Shara Morris. Our lead producer is Rebecca Kaufman. Our associate producer is Chloe Chobel. Our production manager is Samantha Allison. Our music is by Asha Ivanovich. Concept by Odelia Rubin and Shara Morris. Our engineer is Josh Hahn. And special thanks to Hagar Elvis. 